Zechariah 1, 18 to 21. This is the second vision of Zechariah, vision number two in verses 18 to 21. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Amen. Zechariah's visions are intended to both admonish and to encourage. To admonish and encourage. In the previous one, he has done both, admonished and encouraged, encouraging the people of God with the fact that God cares for them, He loves them, He will comfort them, He will choose them again, provide for them, and redeem them from their woes and from their sins, the sins and the punishments that they deserve. In this one also, the focus is on encouragement. The encouragement is related to the wrath of God on nations, the wrath of God against the nations. The wrath of God is evident in that he has these craftsmen, artisans, workmen, who are going to destroy the horns. The horns obliterated and scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, but God will raise up these craftsmen or artisans in order to destroy the horns for the sins that the horns have committed. And this assurance, remember, is related to the wrath of God against the enemies of God. One source of comfort the people of God have has to do with the fact that God is a God of justice and He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will, spend, they will be punished and experience eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The wrath of God. Though the wrath of God isn't a word used here or a phrase used here in this paragraph, that is the overarching message here. The enemies of God's people who scattered God's people, they themselves will be terrified, scattered, destroyed, thrown down in due time, in God's time. Verse 18. It begins with this phrase, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. This expression to lift up the eyes, I lifted up my eyes. It may be that the prophet has his head down or he has his head straight in order to contemplate what he just saw in the first vision, in the previous paragraph. It may be that that's the reason, but God gets his attention and he lifts up his eyes and sees another vision. It's an introduction to a transition between contemplation of the previous vision and then looking up to see the next vision. It occurs here in one eighteen. It occurs also in 2 verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, it occurs in five one, where it says, Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, and also in six one. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold... In these ways, it's probably a reference to God getting his attention again because between the visions, however many seconds or minutes there were or hours between the visions, God gets his attention for the next one from contemplation to observation. So then he looks and behold, we notice these also are introduced with this expression or word, behold. This is not a word that we use these days. Often, today, we would just say, see, look, to get somebody's attention. And in this case, it's behold. And it's actually looked, he's looking in terms of his 
actual eyes seeing, but then, and behold, is meant to express something astonishing, something that alarms him or something that surprises him, something that arouses his curiosity for him to say, there were four horns, to introduce that thought. Horns and four horns, which are repeated in verses 19 and 21. These horns and four of them, verse 18 says there were four. The four horns most likely represent a comprehensive and universal power against the people of God. A comprehensive and universal power. That is, a power that comes from the four winds, north, south, east, and west. Likely something like that. It may have reference to kingdoms, certain kingdoms, and there has been speculation as to which kingdoms they represent. However, because he's speaking specifically here of the scattering of Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, it has to be at least the Babylonian kingdom, if not the Assyrian and Babylonian kingdom, because Assyria destroyed Israel and Babylon destroyed Judah. And so the horns most likely have a basic reference to a very powerful universal power that has the ability to do whatever it wants and destroy whatever it wants, whoever it wants. And in Israel's history, Israel and Judah's history, the most obvious examples would be Assyria and Babylon because they, in fact, did do so. 2 Kings 17, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom Israel. And 2 Kings 24 to 25, Babylonia destroys Judah and the capital, Jerusalem. Likely, this is what the four horns represent. A very strong, powerful kingdom or kingdoms that destroyed the people of God, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. It's not, it's unlikely that it's speaking farther ahead into the Greek and Roman periods. Likely that's not it because it says in verse 19, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. 21, which, the horns which have scattered Judah. And the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Because he speaks of them in the past tense, it's likely Assyria and Babylonia. However, the application is true that whatever the enemies of God do, even in the future, even in our time, God will deal out retribution to them. He's going to take care of business one day with them, especially on the day of judgment. All right, now, verse 19. We have the interpretive angel in 19. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me. We saw this phrase earlier. We saw it earlier in chapter 1 and verse 9. The angel who was speaking with me. 113, uh, 114. So the angel who was speaking with me, and also 113, the angel who was speaking with me, 13, 14, and 19, and so forth. There are other examples in, the, in chapters 2 to 6 of this angel who is an angelic interpreter or interpretive angel helping the prophet understand what he is seeing. And we saw last time from Revelation chapter 1, 1 to 3, that even John the Apostle, 19.10 and 22.8, that John the Apostle had an angel helping him, and even Daniel the prophet had an angel helping him understand what God revealed to him. Same here. The interpretive angel is asked, So I said, 19, I said to the, the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? 
these has reference to the four horns. What are these? And he answered me, oh, but we also must notice, the prophet is a humble man. If he doesn't know, he asks the messenger of God for help. And in that way, we would learn from that. When we don't know, we should ask. And we should find out from a true source, a reliable source, authoritative source, not the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God. Zechariah the prophet does that. He doesn't go elsewhere. He goes to the angel and asks the angel, what are these? And he answered me. He answered me. That is a very easy, simple phrase. He answered me. But this is actually according to the promise we have in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James 1, 5 to 8. James 1, 5 to 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He went to the true source, to the angelic source, to learn. Also, James 3.13. James 3.13 to 18. 3.13 to 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A contrast, a clear contrast between earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, verses 13 to 15, or 13 to 16, and then 17 and 18, heavenly wisdom, the wisdom from above. That means that the vision that Zechariah receives is meant to produce these virtues, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, purity, mercy, good fruits, an unwavering faith, and an unhypocritical faith. Because the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And the, the interpretive angel answers, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. It's evident if Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem are intended here, and they have scattered, these powers have scattered or exiled, destroyed the people, and exiled them. This is according to the threat of God. We'll go back to that threat in a moment. But first, let's notice the sequence here, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Why that sequence? Why not, if we're talking about the nations, Israel, the northern kingdom, which was destroyed first, 722 B.C., Judah, the southern kingdom, destroyed second in 586 B.C., and its city, its capital city, Jerusalem, at that time in 586 B.C. Why this order? Well, he's fronting Judah because Judah is the main tribe of the Davidic dynasty. It's the main tribe of the Davidic dynasty. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. 
Genesis 49, 8 to 10. And to read one example of what we're speaking of. First Chronicles, First Chronicles, chapter 5. First Chronicles, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. First Chronicles 5, 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, who is the leader? Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Jacob gave, Jacob the patriarch gave the birthright to Joseph instead of Reuben. But also it says in verse 2, Judah prevailed over his brothers. How did he prevail? He didn't prevail in terms of birthright, but he did prevail in terms of the Christological promise. That's the passage in Genesis 49, 8 to 10. Judah was blessed to be the ancestor of Christ in Genesis 49, 8 to 10. This is specified, narrowed to the family of David in 2 Samuel 7. That's the Davidic covenant. David was from the tribe of Judah. Specified in the family or lineage of David. That's why Christ is called the son of David. Son of David. So in that sense, the leader, the prince, comes from Judah. And in that way, the tribe of Judah is the most important tribe because the lineage of Christ will come from that tribe. Therefore, when it was destroyed, it was more egregious to destroy Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem, than the other tribes. That's why Judah is fronted. Judah is fronted in this list of verse 19 because it is the most important tribe. Messianically speaking, Christologically speaking. Though it wasn't the first one destroyed. And then Jerusalem, the city, is specified because it's the capital. It was the capital of the 12 tribes when they were one kingdom. And then when Judah became a separate kingdom, Jerusalem remained the capital. And therefore, that's why it's mentioned and specified. Verse 20. Oh, no, verse 19. We also must answer that it was scattered. Now, when we say that it was, or when it says that the horns scattered Judah, the horns scattered Judah, which is also mentioned in verse 21, scattered Judah, twice it's mentioned there, against the land of Judah. Horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Um, This was threatened by God. Let's turn our attention to, not only is it true that the nations scattered Judah, but it was wicked nations that scattered wicked Judah. And ultimately, it was God behind the wicked nations to scatter Judah. And in due time, God will scatter and destroy those wicked nations that scatter Judah. We must always see it this way. We should also note that we're talking about the Old Testament. And therefore, we cannot believe that God was only or primarily concerned with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and that he had no obligations, that God had no requirements, that there was no guilt, no responsibility for the sins of the nations of the world during the Old Testament. It's not true at all. God is the God of the earth. The earth is the Lord and all it contains. Psalm 24, verse 1. God is the creator of the whole world and he's the judge of the whole world. 
This was true throughout the Old Testament. And that fact shows in that God will raise up these craftsmen who will terrify and throw down the horns. But first, let's see that God warned and threatened Judah or Israel with this very fact that he would scatter them, that God himself would scatter Judah. Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, 33. In the days of Moses, Moses preached this, Leviticus 26, 33. In a list of curses, he says, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. God is the speaker. Moses is preaching and writing this. He says, I, I God, will scatter among the nations. You, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you. That is the sword of the nations after the people of God and then destroy their nation, their country. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is the most recent prophet before Zechariah who highlights this very fact that it is God destroying Judah, God scattering Judah by means of foreign nations. First is Ezekiel 5, Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 1. Ezekiel 5, verse 1. We'll read 1 to 12. And notice how often he says he will scatter. As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are, com- are completed. Then you shall take one third and strike it with the sword all around the city and one third you shall scatter to the wind. And I will unsheath a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes and take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Thus the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her, but she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you, and scatter all your remnant to every wind." So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw and my eye shall have no pity and I will not spare. One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you and one third I will scatter to every wind. And I will unsheath a sword behind them. God is the one scattering them. And he's scattering them with the sword. And it's not God's sword from heaven, but it's God's sword in the hands of the enemies, the foreigners who will destroy them. 
Ezekiel chapter 6. Ezekiel 6, verse 5. 6, 5. I shall also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols, and I shall scatter your bones around your altars. Verse 8. However, I shall leave a remnant for you, uh, for you will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. Chapter 12, Ezekiel 12, 14, 12, 14, and 15. And I shall scatter to every wind all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops, and I shall draw out a sword after them. So they will know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and spread them among the countries. But I shall spare a few of them from the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, that they may tell all their abominations among the nations where they go, and may know that I am the Lord. It is the Lord God who's scattering them. Though the nations are used to scatter them. Okay, let's now look at this truth. The fact that God uses evil men to destroy other evil men. And when he does so, he eventually punishes the evil men that he used as his weapon. God destroys evil men by means of other evil men. And once he does that, the evil men he used as his weapons, he will eventually destroy them. 1 Kings, 1 Kings 15, 25. 1 Kings 15, 25 to 30. First, we'll read about these dynasties and then God's punishment on them. 1525 of 1 Kings. Now, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. This is when the kingdoms were divided. And Jeroboam was the first king of the north. His son was Nadab. Verse 26. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it came about, as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Why did Baasha kill Nadab and the whole dynasty of Jeroboam? It says in verse 30, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and which he made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. You see the reasons? Jeroboam's own sins. Jeroboam made others in Israel sin. He made others in Israel sin. He made Israel sin. And he provoked the Lord to anger. Right? That's what it says. So in terms of Jeroboam's punishment, he deserved it. But what about Baasha? Was he an upright, godly man? Let's continue in chapter 16. 1 Kings 16, 5. 16, 5. Actually, uh, 1533. First, let's see an explicit statement. 1533 to 34. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Tirzah and reigned 24 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. He didn't learn, even though he executed the dynasty of Jeroboam, 
he practiced the same sins of Jeroboam, the evil. It's called evil in 34. Okay, now 16.5. 16.5. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Baasha slept with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah. And Elah, his son, became king in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hananik, also came against Baasha and his household. Why? Both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam. And because he struck it. Why did Baasha's dynasty also get destroyed? Because of the evils that he practiced and because he struck the dynasty of Jeroboam. He wiped that dynasty out of existence and that was also God's will, but it was his evil. So God punished him for his evil. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10. This is in reference to Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria. We've already said Assyria was appointed by God to destroy the northern kingdom Israel. That happened in the lifetime of Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah explains what, what God is doing there. Chapter 10, verse 5. Isaiah 10, 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Did you see that? Woe to Assyria. That means there's a curse against Assyria. But he also calls Assyria the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Which means God uses Assyria because God is indignant toward Israel. In one sentence right there. Now he further explains. I send it, I send it, Assyria, against a godless nation, against Israel, and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather... It is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. Assyria's purpose is not to do the will of God. It's not as though they are godly people who hear a word from the Lord and say, okay, we'll do your will. It's not that. Their purpose is to destroy, to capture, to trample down, to exploit their enemies. That's their purpose. They don't intend to do the will of God. Verse 8, For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Harkimish, or Hamath like Arpad, or Samaria like Damascus, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria? Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? They're boasting in their power. Okay, verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. First, he's punishing Zion and Jerusalem's arrogance. Then, in due time, he will punish Assyria's arrogance. Verse 13. For he has said, Assyria has said, by the power of my hand, and by my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants, and my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Yes, all those nations were so frightened by Assyria, they dared, they dared not speak up and resist. Okay, but look at 15. 
We could read 15 to 19, but you'll see the point in 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? So who's the chopper and the wielder? God. And who's the instrument? Assyria, the axe or the saw. That one would be like that would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. No, the instrument doesn't control the owner of the instrument. There's no way. Or the maker of the instrument. It doesn't work like that. So God destroys Judah, but he will now destroy the nations. That destroyed Judah. Because they're all wicked. And how is he explaining it in Zechariah? Now we've come to verse 20. Zechariah 1.20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. The Lord showed me four craftsmen. He first says what their guilt is. They scattered Judah. Verse 19. Now the punishment for their guilt, the four Craftsmen. We notice here it's the Lord. The Lord showed me. The interpretive angel is there to interpret, but the Lord is the main one guiding and revealing his word to the prophet. The Lord is the one showing it. And specifically, who is it? It is the Lord of verse 12, 12 and 13. Then the, the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. It's the Lord Jesus who is the revealer of his word to the prophet, the Lord Jesus. Also, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In verse 1, he's called the angel of the Lord. And then in verse 2, he's simply called the Lord, who calls on the Lord, the Father, God the Father, to rebuke Satan. The Lord Jesus is always the mediator, Old Testament or New Testament. In the Old Testament, in his pre-incarnate state in the New Testament after his incarnation. Pre-incarnation and then incarnation. In all periods, all times, he is our mediator. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John 1, 18. Now, in verse 20, this word craftsman is used. This word applies to different kinds of craftsmen or artisans. It applies to those who are jewelers, Exodus 28, 11. It applies to blacksmiths or ironsmiths in 1 Samuel 13, 19. It applies to carpenters, Jeremiah 10, verse 3. Jeremiah 10, verse 3. But why would God use this imagery to explain how he's going to destroy the horns? Why would he use a craftsman to destroy the horns? Well, craftsmen, they work with different objects. And they can also work with horns. Can they not? After they kill an animal, the horns 
on a ram, the horn, horns on, a, on an ox, the horns on deer. God can use, God does use that imagery to say that he is, that the horns are powerful, an imagery of power, but he can also destroy the powers of men. Correct? And when he destroys the powers of men, he can use craftsmen or artisans in different fields to destroy the horns and to shape, fashion, crush even. If the craftsman or the hunter doesn't want the horns, he can do whatever he wants. He can get rid of them. Correct? He can crush it. Crush the horns, crush the animal, whatever he wants. But look, because the Lord is behind the craftsman, that's why that's possible. It's, they are not mere craftsmen, but because the Lord is behind them. Now, who might these craftsmen be for craftsmen? If we are talking about the immediate condition and historical circumstance of Zechariah, it would be the subsequent kingdom that destroys Babylon, which would be Persia, or we would say, or could, could say, Medea and Persia, because both of those nations joined up as an empire to destroy Babylonia. And that happened in 539 BC. It happened just a few years before these prophecies in Isaiah, or Zechariah, chapter 1, which occurred in 519 B.C. About 20 years before, that's what happened. God raised up Medea and Persia to destroy Babylon. Let's see how God uh, predicts this and He actually does this. We see this happen in first. He promises this in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 11 to 17. Isaiah 54, 11 to 17. And then we'll see who it is specifically. Even Isaiah will say. Isaiah 54, 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed, and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antinomy, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal, and your entire wall of precious stones. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great." In righteousness you will be established, you will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith. This is our word, translated smith in verse 16 craftsman or smith. I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. And I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. The smith who creates weapons, he creates these weapons to destroy and to destroy the enemies of the people of God. Isaiah predicted that Cyrus, king of the Persians, would be that immediate, immediate source of defeat for Babylon. Isaiah 44, verse 8. 44, 8. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, 
she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. He actually did do that. Ezra chapter 1, 1 to 4, Cyrus was the one who issued a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Isaiah 44, 28. Cross-reference with Ezra 1, 1 to 4. Also, Isaiah 45, verse 1. 45, 1, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed one, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. God through Cyrus, he says. Now, Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah chapter 51. He has a lengthy oracle against Babylon, Jeremiah does, in chapters 50 and 51. And in 51.1, he says the following, 51.1. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Lev Kamai, the spirit of a destroyer. And I shall dispatch foreigners to Babylon that they may winnow her and may devastate her land. For on every side they will be opposed to her in the day of her calamity. This word in verse 1, Lev Kamai, it's referring to Babylon. It literally means the heart of those who rise up against me. The heart of those who rise up against me. Lev Kamai means that. Well, Babylon is against God. Their heart rises up against God. And in verse 1, God is going to arouse against Babylon. God is going to arouse. In verse 2, I shall dispatch foreigners to Babylon that they may winnow her and devastate her land. Who are they? Who are they whom the Lord will arouse, whose spirit he will arouse. 51.11. Jeremiah 51.11. and 12. Sharpen the arrows. Fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes. The Medes. Medea, the Medes and the Persians. Medes. Because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. For it is the vengeance of the Lord, vengeance for his temple. Lift up a signal against the walls of Babylon. Post a strong guard. Station sentries. Place men in ambush. For the Lord has both purposed and performed what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. God raises up the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus was a Persian. Darius was a Mede, the Medes and the Persians, to destroy Babylon. He raises up nations to destroy other nations. And in this case, he's calling them craftsmen. 21, Zechariah 1, 21. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But these, but these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. The interpretation is given, and the interpretation is the horns scattered Judah so much so that no man lifts up his head. Lifting up the head is a symbol of victory, of joy, of conquest. When the head is down, that's when there is sadness and gloom. 
whether that's God's head down or our head down, it's a signal or symbol of us being defeated. But when the head is lifted up, it's the opposite. Let's see this in Numbers chapter 6. Numbers 6. 6, 24. To 26. Number 6, 24 to 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. When he makes his face shine on us and when he lifts up his countenance on us, that's the sign of joy and blessing, radiance. He is pleased with us. We are pleased with him. It is mutual in that way. In Psalm 110, Psalm 110, when Christ has the victory, when Christ has the victory, it says the following. Psalm 110, 4 to 7. 110, 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. That's his work. And now he is refreshed and joyful. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Therefore, he will lift up his head. But also, we shall lift up our heads. He shall, but we shall. If he does, he does so, so that he helps us to do so. Psalm 27, 6. Psalm 27, 6. Because God is the refuge, in verses 1 to 5, he says in verse 6, 27, 6, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And Psalm 43, 43, 5, 43, 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. We are told not to be disturbed, not to be anxious. Hope in God, we shall again praise him because he is the help of our countenance and our God. That's the promise. That's what he's saying here. They were unable to lift up their heads, but God's going to now make sure that we are lifting up our heads. Because God's going to send the craftsmen to terrify and throw down the enemy. To terrify and to throw down the enemy. One more place. Ezekiel 21, 31. Ezekiel 21, 31. This is in reference to Judah, but this also applies to our verse and to the nations. 21, 31. And I shall pour out my indignation on you. I shall blow on you with the fire of my wrath. And I shall give you into the hand of brutal men. Brutal men. Skilled in destruction. Brutal men skilled in destruction. This word skilled is the same word for artisan or craftsman. The same word in Zechariah 1.21. And even a a footnote might say, your footnote might say, artisans of destruction. God raises up, in this case to punish, but 
in the case of Zechariah to punish the enemies, but to encourage the people of God that he will vindicate them. Are we in the times of the new covenant also to rejoice like this? Or are we always only to seek for love and mercy in others? Or can we seek for vindication, our vindication meted out as judgment on others in the New Testament? Revelation 6. We close with these few references in Revelation. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. These are the martyrs, the saints in heaven. Revelation 6, 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were, there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Do saints sin in heaven? No. And they are praying, crying out to God, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're not sinning when they ask for their vindication. Also, when they are destroyed, when our enemies are destroyed, it says in 1820, Revelation 1820, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. We're commanded to rejoice when the judgment falls on Babylon the Great. Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon the Great falls, and we are commanded to rejoice. And lastly, we read in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 19 verse 1, 1 to 10. Revelation 19, 1 to 10. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John the Apostle sees this great worship in heaven and he falls down to worship at the feet of the angel, the interpretive angel. And the angel says, no, don't do that. John, when he saw this great worship of the great multitude in heaven, they're worshiping God because of God's righteousness. God's righteousness toward them, which produced salvation. God's righteousness toward the wicked, the unrepentant sinners, 
which brought about their righteous judgment, due penalty. So we should rejoice the same way, that he redeems us by gifting us, as it says in verse 8, it was given to her, it was given to her. He clothes us as a gift with his righteousness, but also his righteousness to punish. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.